Welcome to Cathedral Talk, a podcast about architecture and Minecraft, where we converse to save Notre Dame. seen what I've done in Minecraft? No, not recently. Why don't you have a log in and take a look at the server's latest iteration? Man, the Temple of Elemental Evil is looking really good, Zach. You've been doing a lot of work on that. Have you? Yeah. Oh, I need to go check it out. Sorry. I've been doing Temple of Elemental Evil and I've also been doing this nice Nordic village. I was like on constantly for like two weeks and I was the only one. So you must have done that just as I hit my like break point in the latest build if you've been doing all that we must have just missed each other the server is different what do you mean the server is different where am i oh i'm on the other side of the mountain are you on the farm side yes there's a gate to hell where i thought notre dame should be i'm like that feels like an odd choice the gate to hell yeah i've used up my last rocket there's a rocket shop in town you don't have to pay there are no prices on anything the amount of time it would take you to teach me that is definitely longer than me to just get to notre dame (laughs) So once again, it's been a while since we talked about my two-to-one build of Notre Dame, but fortunately, I finally have quite a bit more done on the choir section, along with its chevet. We are now looking at Notre Dame at its second level or its second tier, where the gallery is above the main arcade. Yeah, okay, this actually does kind of look like a cathedral now. Yeah, it's actually coming along, huh? That Those are recognizable... uh... Accoutrement. <laughs> Thank you. I'm still very, very, very far away because this thing is way too massive. The perspective is a strange thing at such a large scale. I'm still trying to figure out, like, when it comes time to shooting videos of it, how am I going to do it? Because the shader pack that I usually use doesn't behave well for zoomed in shadows. So I'm going to have to figure out what packs will be the best to shoot such a large build in. I feel like this might be a A great time to return to our topic of sunk cost fallacy. And I'll remind people that this is practically a survival build. Uh, Of course, we do play on a server with a few mods that make certain things easier. Sometimes we quarry more stone than you might in vanilla Minecraft because of our experience levels from MCMMO. And we also have... um, Various other options. And we, Zach and I have been making more use of spectator mode recently to zoom around and look at things from high above. And I've made more use of that recently because with such a large build, you need to really fly backwards and just take a good look at it to make sure it looks okay often. And as fun as the Elytra is, you know, obviously you can't stay in one place with the Elytra. So you really need sometimes to just hover, take a look at what you've got, and then fly right back to where you are and continue working. So for this back half, how much taller will it be? So right now, I'd say it is roughly on the on the backside. We're, t- we're talking about the whole thing, but just on the backside, if you think about the roof in addition to the, the walls, um, it's about 50% the height, roughly. Uh, so it's going to be roughly twice as tall. But you can kind of already see that wedding cake shape, right? where at least especially from the the east end you can see how like the outside walls on the main level uh are wider with its larger circumference and then as you work your way to the gallery level 
on the next level above, you know, there's only a single aisle of vaults that wraps around that sort of semicircle. And then when we eventually build the next level above that, that's just going to be the clearstery that has no vaulting around except for the main vessel in the very middle. So it gets thinner and thinner the higher you go up. So from an internal perspective, though, where I'm standing right now in the back, you say I'll be twice as tall, but that's not necessarily twice as tall from where it is now to the vaulted ceiling that I would see, correct? Yeah, I, I'd say that maybe it is, maybe it's like 60% of the way there to that vaulted ceiling and the last 40% to go for towards the highest vaulted ceiling if you're on the inside. Gotcha. So I'm trying to visualize, uh, I mean, I we know that this is your two to one scale, so it's for a, a Minecraft person running around, it's not supposed to be to scale with their body, but I'm, tr- I'm trying to internalize if myself, if David was to stand in a real two to one Notre Dame, what would it look like? Would it look like this or would it look different? I do feel like a real, real world two to one scale Notre Dame would be even bigger compared to myself than this. Is that right? Well, I one of the things that I, I, I think about when it comes to the two to one scales in Minecraft and the virtual world is that I think they kind of compensate for usually most people working on relatively small screen sizes, right? Um, I I feel like when you build a build that's a little bit bigger than the actual one-to-one scale, you're kind of compensating for, you know, you wouldn't, you don't see it the way you would in the real world. Sure. If we looked at this build in VR with like the Oculus or something, it would probably feel way bigger than it does just looking at it on your computer screen. That's a good point. Do you know anyone with an Oculus? <laughs> we should we should play on our server sometime with an Oculus. It's so pretty. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I was going to say that um, when you when you play, I, I know when you play Minecraft with an Oculus, all the blocks just feel way bigger, and suddenly, like a single block of dirt. Uh, a cubicle one by one by one meter of dirt just feels like, oh my God, that is a really large block of dirt. Well, one meter by one meter by one meter is pretty large. Yeah, it is pretty large. And that's why it's so hard to get like enough detail when your basic unit of size is really quite large. So that's why most people building cathedrals usually build them a bit bigger than the one to one scale. David has gone completely VR. So is it actually working, David? I'm a virtual boy. No, of course it's not. Oh, it's not actually working. I stuck this on my face without doing a thing. Doesn't work that easily. I don't know. Does it does that work? Can you just plug it in? I don't know. Have you? I don't remember. I know I've shown you some things in VR before, but have you actually looked at your own Minecraft in VR before? I have not actually looked at my own Minecraft in VR. That is something I want to do. Yeah. Hmm. That would be fun. Yeah, I didn't realize we, we never tried that. Are you going to figure it out? Future episode. As a brother, you're going to do him a solid and figure that out for him? <laughs> uh, not anytime soon. I haven't I haven't worn that thing in months. VR is a, a very exciting thing overall conceptually, but I don't think anyone's yet built the software to uh, make it worth the time uh, and effort for the most part. I, I think it seems like people haven't quite yet figured out like the thing that makes it essential. Yeah, because it's not like a big, at first thought you might think like a big epic gaming experience would be fun in VR, but no, it's miserable because you're standing up flailing around the whole time. I don't want to do that for 40 hours. 
It's awful. <laughs> I'm happy to do short little bursts of experiences. Well, I mean, the Wii was um, pretty popular and that had you bopping around, you know, playing Wii tennis and stuff. Not for 40 hour experiences. No, no, no. Also, uh, having that on your head is way sweatier than just holding some Wii remotes. That's true. But yeah, we could uh, have to figure that out. But that's yeah. uh, that would be a good thing to try. Yeah, we, we should do that. Well, VR might not be quite there yet, but AR is pretty cool. AR standing for augmented reality where you typically have some sort of screen in front of you that overlays onto the real world or at the very least as you move it around it changes with you depending on your perspective ar has some pretty cool use cases do you have an ar set up at your house no no does anyone i don't think anyone does <laughs> well david where have you experienced a good augmented reality experience of Notre Dame recently? Of Notre Dame? Of Notre Dame, you say. What? <laughs> Didn't you guys go to... I think Tom is genuinely confused. <laughs> to like an immersive Notre Dame experience like yesterday or something? Augmented? What, what? I think Tom is genuinely confused though. Well, I have no idea what you guys went to. So I have no idea how to tease you up. I'm just trying to improv it correctly. No, no you're, doing a, you're doing a phenomenal job. Thank you. What? What? what what is the augmented reality actually refer to in the lingo? I just I gave a I gave a definition in the podcast. Play it back. Yeah, play it back uh, right now. Okay. Well, I don't mean in the podcast. Play it back right now. <laughs> augmented reality, where you typically have some sort of screen in front of you that overlays onto the real world, or at the very least, as you move it around, it changes with you depending on your perspective. The little screens, Tom. The little screens that we use at the museum. Why is that considered augmented reality? How do you define augmented reality versus just any fool walking around with an iPad? So it, I would say that that was more quasi-augmented reality because it wasn't actually overlaying. It wasn't overlaying reality. Um, but it, what it was doing, this is a weird way to get into this because the audience has no idea what we're talking about. Okay. All right. Well, let's back up and talk about what we, what we actually did. Where did you go? So David and I went to the National Building Museum in Washington, D.C., which we are lucky enough to live uh, very close to. Doesn't that just sound like the most boring concept for a museum ever? Like, just like straight up. I, I, like, I, have, to, I have to call it out. It's not. But buildings? Like, I love buildings. A building about buildings buildings yeah what's that sounds great i i'm totally all about that right but wouldn't if you you like buildings wouldn't you prefer to actually see the actual building rather than a museum about them yeah but it takes a long time to get to paris and it's freaking expensive do they have little devices that you could use that would show you like on a screen what the what the building would look like well at least for this one exhibit so it's a temporary exhibit that's up right now uh, it's up just through the end of September, uh, but they've recently over the summer that they've had a new exhibit on Notre Dame de Paris, of course, focusing not only on the recent fire and the restoration work, but also, of course, the history of its construction right now. Again, this is another one of those times where it feels like, you know, the fire, as horrific as it was and a tragedy that it occurred, it certainly has really put Notre Dame at like the forefront of everybody's like interest, which has been really, you know, just seeing it all over the place, like, a, you know, front and center at the National Building Museum. Here's 
all the stuff that's happening in the construction process. Yeah, like there's a whole podcast about it now. I know, right? Would anyone find a podcast about Notre Dame interesting? Surprisingly. Surprisingly many, actually. Surprisingly, a number of people. A number do. An integer of people do. A cardinal number. I want to also, for the record, say that I actually do not find the, the building museum boring. Uh, because I did leave as my comments card at the museum that if uh, when they asked for my review of the exhibit, I said they should listen to Cathedral Talk to get my thoughts. So if anyone from the National Building Museum read that and is listening, I do not find your museum boring. Oh, yeah. No, it was great. I, I Now, we have to admit we had three kids with us, two, uh, one toddler and two babies. And so the first thing we asked as soon as we went in the building, we're like, all right, so we mosey around or just head straight to Notre Dame. And then we were like, we need to head straight to Notre Dame because we are on borrowed time with these kids. So um, we, we went straight up, but we did not see the rest of the museum. So we did, we did not have any other uh, feedback to give to the rest of the museum. Another time, I'm sure. Is there a children's museum for building museums? Well, they had a children's room in the building museum, which had a few different play things, but most importantly had a giant field almost of blue foam building blocks of various shapes and connecting points which looked intimidating even for me as a 30 year old it was pretty cool i thought like kid the kids were having fun did you use those building blocks to teach your children about web defaulting well that's mostly where we sent sent our wives with the kids (laughs) (laughs) so i don't know what they did in there yeah i i didn't see much i can't i after i i i showed up you know after an indeterminate amount of time at the Notre Dame exhibit. And James had already built a uh, sort of a structure castle-like thing. So I was quite proud of him. You were like, the stone that you got from this quarry is of lesser quality and it's just going to collapse in the next fire. Does foam burn in fire? That might be flame retardant. (laughs) They have like anti-fire stuff that they spray under ceilings that kind of looks like foam, but I don't know if that's the same kind of foam. I think it's a different kind of foam. Yeah, well, this wasn't spray. Yeah. These were blocks. These were blocks. Well, that joke fell completely short. (laughs) I don't remember what the comment was. Whether Tom was critiquing James' construction materials in the construction that he made and using his architectural knowledge... To be like, you should have done this or, or that. See, that didn't sound like a joke. That just seemed like something like Tom would do. Well, usually he wants me to build him like something for his cars to go inside. So chitty chitty bang bang. Uh, He doesn't actually have a toy chitty chitty bang bang because it was it's it's surprisingly difficult to find a miniature that would be sturdy enough for his age level. David demonstrated for us a perfectly realistic Lego construction of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Yeah, but it never got sold. Oh. It was like its third attempt on the Lego ideas uh, that Lego kept rejecting, probably because they realized that no one actually knows what Chitty Chitty Bang Bang is. Oh, come on. That's that's just inaccurate. But a callback. One of us listens to prior episodes. So the Notre Dame exhibit. It was it was really neat, actually. I think it really was for an interactive um, museum exhibit. Uh, they they really did a, a, an excellent job. Where they had iPads that you walked around in, or generic iPads, and they had lots of large graphics, of course, all posted up around the walls, uh, sort of lit up large canvases of uh, images of both Notre Dame in the past and of the recent fire and restoration activities. 
But as you would go around the room looking at various things, they would have all sorts of various QR or whatever they're called, like scanner things that you could hold your iPad to. And then your iPad would just jump to a new segment. That would be all the sort of virtual animation. And it would be a situation where you could pivot your body to actually physically look at different sections of the cathedral at different angles as if you were standing there, which is pretty cool. And that's what I was referring to by augmented reality. Uh, you take the iPad and, and can look 360 degrees around you and, and see the cathedral from 360 degrees, but not just not just like as it exists today. They did that repeatedly throughout the exhibit for different time periods, for different portions of the cathedral. Yeah, um, They even let you do that but have the cathedral change over time so uh, you could just drag with your finger and and see here here's what it was in 1300 all the way up to 2020 yeah it truly was despite our obvious bias for the subject material mm. um one of the best museum exhibits i've ever seen yeah um partially because they did so much with such little space yeah the the exhibit room was only the size somewhere like between like a one and two bedroom apartment in amount of space it wasn't that much square footage yeah maybe like two ish classrooms space of yeah yeah they had probably a dozen but some of them were back-to-back giant printout pictures high quality photographs or uh artistic renditions but then as tom said little stations where you could scan your ipad to to bring up a different portion of either architecture or construction or building or the fire or religious and political history too of the cathedral and it was just a much more engaging way to like click around and, and focus on the things that you wanted to, to focus in rather than your more traditional museum that has like tons of little text on cards like next to an artifact or something where it's hard to really like read all that text. This this allowed you to get a lot of more information in, in uh, a more engaging way. Yeah, they definitely programmed the devices, kind of like David said, to try to appeal to different kinds of learners. Uh, they gamified certain things that were like, oh, find 10 hidden stained glass windows. I think I found one. How would you find? Yeah, I didn't. I, I was like, I was not. <laughs> again, like you'd have to imagine that you're holding this iPad and you have to look around in 360 degrees, but in three dimensions, right? So you're like aiming the iPad in all sorts of directions. And then you might see like a little light up pinprick in one direction. Be like, oh, let me click on that. And yeah, there were supposed to be like 10 things. I was like, I'm not really interested in a treasure hunt, but I could see how this would really tickle other people. So um, that was it was neat to see the setup that they used for that. So do you think Minecraft builds in general could be useful for historical societies and museums to bring like an immersive experience to? Absolutely. Yeah, I have to put some links uh, maybe in the future, but I've seen, I think even, was it the Museum of London? It might have been the museum, one of the museums in London that was um, using a Minecraft build of old London in 1666, just before the Great Fire occurred, just to show you what the city used to look like. And it was in a Minecraft build, I think built roughly one to one scale. And, you know, it was a neat way to do it because um, while, you know, you can have just 3D models constructed by 3D artists, it's neat to have, I, I think I've said this before, Minecraft as your, your medium to communicate with other people because people, 
identify with a common medium that they feel like that they can participate in too. Because yeah, the the level of um at the Notre Dame uh, exhibit, the the level of like computer graphics that that went into this was actually quite a bit yeah had multiple renderings of the cathedral like i said at, at different ages but also like depictions of the workers uh at, at different times uh they made a point of of showing the master builder several times everyone was a man both in the past and present uh, which is at least accurate for one of those two i don't know uh, i don't know about present <laughs> Uh, but they made uh, like, tried to name people when they could, but they made a point of saying that we don't know who the master builder was. Um, but then also like 3D renditions of their workplaces or the the lumber mill where they got the the, the trees for the forest. Close ups on the spire, close ups on Napoleon's wedding. Uh, just lots of art was commissioned. 3D art was commissioned for the exhibit. So I know uh, the National Trust in England is. Uh, collaborating with Xbox to make castles in Minecraft that are reconstructions of castles in in England. Interesting. Obviously, we don't have any insider information on this because we're just three random dudes on the internet. Schmucks. Well, I wasn't going to use that word, but yes. Do you see a possible reality in the future where, you know, something akin to the National Trust coordinates with something akin to xbox and this type of immersive experience leaves the museum and enters you know a common shared medium like tom was saying that was one of the questions on their survey uh at the end was uh would you be interested in taking any of this home if this was on our website or something uh to that effect yeah and i was actually thinking about that and i was like you know would this be just as good if it were just like on the internet that I could watch it, look at it on a website. And I would say like, it would be maybe 75% as good, but there definitely was some fun in the experience of walking around the room with the actual real world physical graphics all posted around and including a few models that they had constructed as well, or maybe even 3D printed. And then using that in conjunction with the augmented reality iPads that did, I think, enhance the experience quite a bit too, in a way that if you took away the one from the other, it wouldn't be as rewarding, I'd say, but still good. It was actually the one, like I gave a very glowing review on the feedback they asked for, but that was the one question that I gave the negative answer of they asked, would, would you be interested in this? And I said, no, um, not because I don't think like someone else might be, or that there could be a, a good use case for that. Uh, obviously national building museum, downtown DC is not very accessible to many people other than people already in DC. But just thinking for myself, like there's tons of amazing resources out there of things that I could learn about on my own at home. I'm not going to spend probably much time looking at any of them. I don't just mean Notre Dame. I mean anything. Um, There's something about making the decision to go to a museum, both physically and the time that it takes that like you are dedicating yourself to this is what you're doing for an hour or two or however long uh, that I, I think just doesn't translate very well when when trying to do that at home. Yeah, I was interested when you were mentioning earlier, though, that they uh, that some museum in London has already done Minecraft for a building that, th- that they're that they're doing. And that does make me wonder, was that built by, quote unquote, professional Minecrafters? Was that something that an amateur did on their own and then 
presumably was paid for their effort after the fact or was it like a commissioned work and the the concept of a commissioned work in minecraft is a intriguing concept that I, I'd, I'd never considered before and i think zach was getting to it that sounds like microsoft itself who owns minecraft is is potentially being commissioned as well yeah so it's the national trust and the video that i'm aware of is of corf castle uh, and the format of the video was that there's um there's like a one-to-one scale representation of the world and that's generated using some not usgs but global equivalent of just terrain map and so they algorithmically generated the terrain of corf castle uh, it's just on a hill and i don't know who they got to build the ruins uh as they are today either an employee of minecraft itself or or someone in the national trust or just someone that they commissioned but they got in contact with Grian, who is a very famous content creator for Minecraft. And they partnered with Grian to what would Corf Castle have looked like back before it became a ruin. And so they commissioned him to make a video about what design choices he would make um, in artistically reconstructing it in minecraft yeah that was a really fun video to watch um and it was fun because um usually a lot of these minecrafters are focused on their own creative builds that are just creating something that doesn't exist in the real world whereas this was as you could say this is trying to recreate something from the real world and you know I, there is definitely you know since i am one of these people that i really focus on just building replicas of other things that already exist. Um, it's neat to see people who don't normally do that go through that process. Yeah. And it's neat to see people hit a lot of the same roadblocks and tripping points that I often hit too. Like, oh, you realize that something's going to look really good, but if it's just a little too big or a little too small, and then having to make, you know, those rough calls like, well, is it okay if I just stretch something a little bit here or squeeze something a little bit here? Is that acceptable for the sake of building something that feels right, even though technically it's not as accurate to scale? Yeah. And also trying to incorporate different historical documents that may or may not have conflicted with one another. I wonder how many of those that you've experienced in your Notre Dame reconstruction are like, well, this document depicts it this way, this document depicts it this way. Or am I just going to try to go for, you know, the 2020 build that is pretty well documented and it's not it doesn't have any internal inconsistencies in it? Like, did you did you experience the same sort of what source material am I going to crib from? Sorry, I didn't quite follow that question. What, what do you? So when Green was creating... Corf Castle, he was looking at all these historical documents, like pictures, not photographs, but drawings, paintings, descriptions. And so he had to create it from those. Those were all historical documents. They weren't photographs. When you, Tom, are doing your Notre Dame reconstruction, you are trying to build from the past to the present. Do you encounter, when you're trying to build the historical parts of Notre Dame, any conflicts in any historical documents that you have to reconcile. Yes. Okay. I see what you're saying now. 
not as much as that, just because, of course, Notre Dame is already built and currently standing. But I think the common tricky points are, since Notre Dame has evolved so much over time, it's sometimes difficult to ascertain, did this particular element exist in this form at this point in time? When did this window get placed there? Was it in the beginning or was it much later? Um, And that's why it's only been possible recently um, to do this project that I'm doing on the two to one build where, you know, I'm trying to not just build it as it is now, but I'm actually building it in its construction stages from start to finish from 1163 to the 2019 fire or beyond. What did it look like at different stages? And that wouldn't have been possible if it hadn't been for, I think, an explosion of literature that's come out recently especially with all those you know, laser scans that we've talked about recently that sort of have given new data on what the building looked like at different points in time. I think also just to build on your question a little bit more, Notre Dame is a relatively easy thing now that there's so much literature on Notre Dame, but when it comes to some of the more lesser known monuments that I've been starting to tackle, there's you know fewer records to look at and there's Uh, less data to get good images of the builds at different angles. So I think this is going to be an issue that becomes harder to deal with as I continue to branch out to find more, you know, niches of things to try to replicate. Less opportunities for things to conflict when there are fewer records too, though. That's true. That's true. Yeah. When you have fewer conflicts, then you can just build it as is suggested. Yeah. This mirroring of using the medium of uh, I, I guess I, I guess just to say video games, though, it's almost feels reductive at this point to do historical education is very intriguing. Uh, we've already had the conversation a little bit about VR earlier. I think this is very relevant for the f- future of VR. I said that I don't think people have come up with the, the right use case for VR. I almost think that's because so far most VR development has been in games. And I don't think that's necessarily where it's ultimately going to be best suited uh, for some things. There might be other forms of expression that work better in VR. Looking at historical things from a perspective where you're not actually having to be physically there is definitely one of those things. Being able to walk through Notre Dame, St. Paul's, what name, whatever monument um, from your own home is a very exciting concept. We And it's, it's interesting to, to think about Minecraft doing that. That's such a user-generated uh, medium. Uh, but there have also been big game studios that have attempted to do similar things themselves, the most notable of which would be the Assassin's Creed franchise, which is one that is tr- has always aimed to be historical with definite liberties, massive liberties taken. I should say historical setting with fantastic plot. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but they, they take a lot of pride in that historical setting. And so, uh, over time they've done, they've done French revolution, they've done Renaissance Italy, but more recently they've done some settings where they actually created whole modes where you're not playing the assassins part of Assassin's Creed, but you can just explore it for the historical setting and make it an an educational tool that I think the intent is actually for it to be used in like schools. I'd love to be that teacher who has to go to the principal and be like, can I buy 50 copies of Assassin's Creed yeah. for my classroom? <laughs> <laughs> I think that I think that's offered for free. Do we know 
any teachers that are dealing with uh, video games as part of uh, an educational experience? No, no, we don't. We don't know anybody that would try anything like that. No, carry on. Well, luckily, he doesn't listen to the podcast. Gotta say, no, no. He doesn't. <laughs> nice inside joke for our inside audience. Yes, yeah, so the, the two, just to name them quickly, the two games that uh, I think have tried this, and I think they offer this mode for free as Assassin's Creed Origins, which is about ancient Egypt, and Assassin's Creed Odyssey, which is about uh, Greece during the Peloponnesian War era. I like to think of games as being interactive, and, and I think those, those games are interactive, but there's a difference between the interactiveness of a game in the interactiveness of the level design itself. Yes. And I don't consider Assassin's Creed to have interactive level design. You can't change the landscape as a user. Many games allow you to modify the terrain according to how you see fit. That's why WoW player housing keeps failing time and time when they try it. Yeah, I'm not familiar with that, but do you think that there's an additional element to be gained when you're trying to introduce people to the terrain, allowing that terrain itself to be interactive instead of using an interactive medium like video games to effectively display a static experience? I was just saying, that's certainly the goal for what I want. I'm, I want to be able to play a game that I can build things in now. It's really hard to play anything other than Minecraft for that reason. So just real quickly, I wanted to talk about a few of the specific things that we saw at the National Building Museum's Notre Dame exhibit. Mm -hmm. I, of course, being the uh, learned person I am about Notre Dame, it's going to be hard for them to show me some things that I'm not already aware of with all of the reconstruction and then the building history in the past. But there were a couple things that I found really helpful with the augmented reality. Tom did just straight up like pose that as a challenge to the museum before we got there. He said like, I wonder if they'll be able to show me anything that I haven't already seen before. I did say that. And um, I, I, I think it's not so much the exact facts that they taught me but in the way that they were displayed. Mm -hmm. I think my favorite iPad station was on the stained glass mm -hmm. where you could click on the Western Rose window and it would really just blow up the Rose window and then break up all the different sections and highlight them and sort of have them fly around and whiz around and show you this is what's happening in this segment and these are the themes that are all surrounding the mother of Christ and baby Jesus and then all the zodiac signs are up here and then the seven virtues and seven vices are here Zach's skeptical face is right I was surprised to find out that the zodiac signs were in the stained glass like huh I didn't realize that was a uh, yeah something that they would be including. Yeah, sounds like some Dan Brown nonsense. It, well, it's funny that I mean, you, even we've talked about Chart before and Chart's Cathedral, and it's if you go to Chart's Cathedral in some of the sculptures, you'll notice that not only, of course, do they have the religious iconography again with Christ and Mary and of course all the disciples, but they have many of the pagan scientists from the ancient Greeks as well. They have like Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and, you know, uh, I think Euclid and a whole bunch of uh, the, you know, the great thinkers from far before Christianity, but they were still celebrated as great scientists that have contributed to the works of where we've gotten to this point of building this majestic cathedral. Uh, so that's a chart you said. That was a chart, yeah. 
Knowing all the details of all the sculptures has never been my strong suit when it comes to a lot of these cathedrals, but um, I wouldn't be at all surprised if you really dug deep and looked through all the sculptures that you find more unusual figures that you wouldn't expect to see in just a pure Christian church. I took pictures of two specific factoids that I found interesting along the way that I knew I'd forget if I didn't take a picture. And it was correct because I just relearned them and pulling them open on my phone. Um, but one I thought was a, a fun bit of irony. And the uh, section with Napoleon where they were showing him being coronated in, in Notre Dame, there was a, a picture of a, of a firefighter helmet from 1810, which said that following the fire at the Austrian embassy in 1810, which causes the death of 100 people, the emperor, Napoleon, creates a new military unit to fight fire, the Paris Fire Brigade, the forerunner of the brigade that would extinguish the Notre Dame fire 200 years later. Huh. Thank you, Napoleon. You saved Notre Dame. They also had an excellent animation of the construction of the spire itself of Ville-le-Duc. And of course, this is the one that burned down in 2019, but it's neat to see just the crazy web of carpentry that goes into supporting that spire over the four central piers of the crossing at Notre Dame. And of course, this is what they're going to be replicating right now with um, all the new timber that's being felled in the French forests. I'm really excited, actually, to see the documentation of how they're going to reassemble this thing. There's going to be so much great footage coming out in the next couple of years. Yeah, it was a, a, a few sections of good deconstruction um, of showing the different pieces getting layered onto each other. The spire was a good one. I also, as much as you've talked about how important vaulted ceilings are to Gothic cathedrals, the animation of them building the vaulted ceiling, Yeah, first using... A, a wood construction and then putting the stones over top. I had never actually quite intuited all of that together. I didn't actually quite realize there was a full lattice of, of, of wood being constructed first. It makes a lot of sense, uh, but it, I just hadn't quite put two and two together there before. Mm -hmm. uh, and so seeing the, that step-by-step -step through an animation was really cool. Yeah. Well, and one detail that I noticed that they left out that was like, oh, they forgot something in that little animation where, uh, of course, uh -huh, where you're building the vaulting, you first build placed on top of the, the wooden framework, you put the ribs that are built of the stone, and then you put on top of the space in between the ribs, the webbing, which is the smaller bricks and little pieces of stone that sort of fill in the cavities. But then I always wondered... What is it that really makes sure that those stones don't fall, right? It feels like that you would need another bit of adhesive glue to really just hold that thing together. Yeah. And the, the detail that they left out was that the vaults on top of them, there's usually a layer of concrete that's poured over the whole thing at the end. Mm. So when you look at the tops of these vaults, you can see a sort of concrete-like material that's sort of holding the whole thing together. Also, the other factor that I found interesting was on the restoration um, parts as well. They apparently have set up one of the chapels to be a test site. So there are two test chapels, one of which is entirely painted, are being used to by the restorers who specialize in stone, stained glass, and wall paintings to figure out what is the most appropriate cleaning and restoration protocol. So they're first doing them here before applying it to, all, uh, to the other, that says uh, 24 chapels, which is, again, really smart. Uh, you wonder how they picked which one and the one that they're uh, apparently open to ruining if they're trying out some pretty bizarre uh, techniques. Yeah, well, 
And did that, I forget which chapel it was. I, I meant to write down the name and I forget which one they were looking at. But first of all, we've talked before about my feelings on painting the inside of Notre Dame versus not. And they clearly are. They're restoring paint on the chapels that, you know, flank all the aisles. And then, of course, the main section of Notre Dame. And that is cool. I, I love the bright, brilliant colors in a lot of these chapels. I still really prefer the look of the pure stone and the main aisles and vessel of the cathedral, but it's neat to see, you know, sort of the contrasting comparison. And in particular, some of these chapels just have the most vibrant blues, like there's this blue vaulted ceiling that's been painted that's so pretty. Also, though, if you had looked at that exhibit and if you had turned around and you looked behind you, you could see... Um, the aisle adjacent to that chapel. And you could see what the aisle was going to look like after the cleaning was done. Do you reckon, do you remember seeing that aisle, David, out of curiosity? No, I don't think I noticed that. Okay, well, it was pretty cool. And you can see this in some of the recent documentaries that have come out on YouTube too. Again, we've talked about how they're going for more of just a pure cleaning of the stone rather than whitewashing it like a chart, but it looks really good. Like it is going to be such a brighter cathedral when um, this whole cleaning process is done. Uh, you know how we've talked before about there's a lot of literature that says, and you've even, I think, David, you said yourself how you were surprised the first time you went into Notre Dame and it just seemed really gloomy. I am betting hard that uh, when... We return to Notre Dame when all this restoration is done. I don't think anybody's going to be calling it gloomy. I think one of the biggest misconceptions a lot of the literature has published over the last hundred years is we've assumed that some of these cathedrals that are just so dark because they're so dirty, but once they're cleaned up, they are brilliantly bright. <laughs> they're brilliant. Yeah, right. And on the topic of, of the of the painting, bring out the vibrant too. That was another one of the the neat things that uh, they allowed you to do with the iPads, where uh, they showed the, the 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 west facade, where you could uh, again transition it over time from how it used to look to how it looks today. And they showed you how it used to look when it was painted. Yeah, uh, when the whole thing was painted, and I, I want to say maybe like four hundred years ago. I think it was pre pre-French Revolution, I think, is when they said it was painted. Yeah. Uh, and that, and I know we talked about that previously, about how we now uh, associate old things with stark whites, grays, and blacks. Uh, but actually, the, it was the exact opposite, that back then, everything uh, was painted. Uh, it was only a, quote-unquote, fake revival uh, tendency, which was inaccurate to make things uh, stark uh, like they are now. It is uh, almost garish, like like hard to hard to imagine uh, uh, seeing it look like that today because it's just so antithetical to, to to how we view things like that now. Again, people point fingers now at the the Renaissance as the era when the mistaken concept of oh, classical sculpture was all pure white and marbly, right? Yeah. Uh, that when you look at a lot of the sculpture that came out of the Renaissance era, like Michelangelo's David, right? That is a pure marble statue. That was the style of the Renaissance because theoretically they were mimicking what they thought was how the classics, the Greeks and the Romans did their statues. But, you know, we've also talked before about how during the Renaissance, Gothic cathedrals really fell out of favor. 
And when Gothic cathedrals fell out of favor, not only was it for their architecture and the styles with the flying buttresses and, you know, the very, you know, jagged pointiness when, you know, people were favoring the the classical Greek and Roman columns and pediments and arches, semicircular arches. But I wonder if also the the detesting of the Gothic cathedrals was maybe people thought the colors, which might have been more present back then, were also garish, kind of like we think now, because they were assuming that the classics were this pure white marble color. Yeah, could be. Yeah, just a guess. So as a master builder yourself, and you are going through the process of building Notre Dame, what type of scaffolding are you using? Are you using wood? Like they're using, are you using the bamboo scaffolding that's in the game or are you a true Minecrafter and you're using dirt? (laughs) Uh, I've been mostly using Minecraft scaffolding recently. It certainly had a bit of a learning curve to it because it's got some weird quirks to it. But I actually do love Minecraft scaffolding quite a bit now because it's so easy to take down when you're done with it. You just click a few blocks and then it all comes crashing down. And it's also the only block in Java that you can place in front of you when you're standing on it without having to bend over backwards and try to click on stuff. So uh, once you get the hang of it, Minecraft scaffolding works pretty well. I am definitely not trying to replicate all of the frameworks that are used to build these vaults and things in game. That's just a level beyond I'm willing to go. Thank goodness. <laughs> I haven't noticed any concrete in your build. Yeah, right. There's no concrete in the build. But um, I am trying to show the stages of this is what the building itself looked like at different points in time. And we are up to 1170. Oh, my God. 1170. Uh, that's seven years after 1163. Oh, no. Mathematics. Remember, David, that I've been working on the hardest section, which is the all the semicircles of the Chevet. And it gets easier from here. My kid's going to be in elementary school before this is over. I am not ready to comment on that. Oh, no. College. That's it for now. Check out our podcast website at cathedraltalk.fm. There you will find many architectural visuals and Minecraft goodies. If you would like to support our efforts here at Cathedral Talk to aid in the restoration of Notre Dame, please use the direct link on our website to donate to friendsofnotredamedeparis.org. Friends of Notre Dame is a nonprofit organization that is leading the international fundraising efforts to rebuild and restore Notre Dame Cathedral. By donating to them through the link at cathedraltalk.fm, we'll know that our podcast is reaching new patrons. As our own Minecraft project progresses, we'll be sure to share plans, screenshots, and videos for your own visual palette. Good day and happy building.